Our Father, the scripture says that uh, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope for his loving kindness. That's us. We hope for your loving kindness. We thank you for the loving kindness that we have received from you that has brought us to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The loving kindness that he demonstrated when he went to that cross to die for our sins in our place as our substitute. We are grateful that uh, you worked in our hearts and in our lives to draw us to yourself. No man can come unless the Father draws him. You, you brought us to know Christ. You opened our blind eyes. You did a deep work in our hearts, and we called out to you believing the gospel and believing that our sins could be forgiven, believing that Christ would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that he would come into our life and that he would show us now how to live and he would become our shepherd. And then we thank you, Lord, that for some of us, that was a long time ago. This one gentleman just told me a minute ago that it was 64 years ago today that he found Christ. For others, it was just a few months ago. But whether it's been a short time with Christ or a long time, since we received your loving kindness and received forgiveness of our sins, we've been receiving loving kindness every day of our lives. It never stops. It never ceases. Your mercies are new every morning. And it's interesting, it really is, that every morning we need new mercy. We look back over our lives and, and we see situations and hardships and difficulties and pressures. And what got us through was your loving kindness that came just in the nick of time. You've been sustaining us our entire lives. And, and as we ponder that and think about that, for whatever it is we're facing today, that gives us great hope because you're not going to stop now with the loving kindness. And that loving kindness isn't dependent on us or our performance. You just love us. You, you just flat out love us. The psalmist said, this I know, that God is for me. So oftentimes we think you're against us. The, the enemy tells us that, that we're not worthy. Well, it's true, we're not worthy. But then comes the loving kindness. And we are bowled away and we are blown away by the loving kindness that you have demonstrated to us. Some of us are concerned about the future. Uh, job situation, financial situation, maybe a health report that uh, looks tenuous and we're just not sure what's going to transpire. But once again, we trust in your loving kindness. Your grace is sufficient. It's always there. It's always on time. So as we consider that fact, it should raise our spirits. For those who are discouraged, it should encourage for those that are somewhat anxious, it, it, it should replace that anxiety with, with the peace that passes all understanding. We come with different stuff. We come with different baggage tonight, but we have come. We have, I'm sure, some guys here who have not come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as of yet. We are grateful that they are here. We are grateful that you're doing a work in their life. And although this may seem new, we pray that to them, as they hear your word tonight, and this would be true for all of us, that your word would penetrate our hearts, would speak to the deepest needs of our hearts, and that you would continue to draw us to yourself and give us what we need 
keep sending the loving kindness. We are so grateful it will not stop. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's harder and harder to get up off the knee. Have you noticed that? I got to kind of think about that now before I get up. You know, it just is everything in the right position. Didn't used to have to think about that. We're in Ephesians 6. Inching our way through Ephesians chapter 6. But there's some uh, real meat. There's some real protein here. There are some real uh, vitamins, antioxidants, <laughs> minerals. All the food groups are here, spiritually, in Ephesians 6. So you don't want to fast food this thing. You don't want to go through the drive through on Ephesians 6. You want to sit down and you want to eat every course and you want to uh, savor it. Uh, we haven't met for a week, two weeks now, so let's pick it up at verse 10. We'll go through 13. We're not quite at the armor. I thought I was going to get the armor tonight. We're not quite there. But we're getting close. Finally, be strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6.10, and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, against the methods of the devil, against the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, to stand firm, verse 14, stand firm, therefore, and we'll stop there. Three times he punches this idea of stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. I'm starting to pick up on the idea that he wants me to stand firm. So much of the Christian life is learning to stand firm. So much of the Christian life is when you stand firm, you keep your feet under you. But so often, as we go through life, we, we get hit, we get nailed, we get attacked, we get blindsided, and when that happens, you, you get your feet knocked out from under you. And when that happens, when you get your feet knocked out from under you by the uh, unforeseen events of life, by the uh, uh, situations and circumstances of life, uh, the circumstances you don't want to see, but here they are, here they come. Sometimes they come in waves. Uh, when those come, many times they are attacks of the evil one, trying to discourage us, trying to scare us, trying to make us uh, um, give in to anxiety and fear about the future and where our lives are going. And again, what, what is our responsibility in all this? It's to get our feet back under us. It's a warfare. When you're in battle, you're going to get knocked down. So you get back up. You get Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. This, uh, this concept of standing firm, what does it mean? Cleon Rogers, uh, excellent Greek scholar, says this. This word could be used in a military sense, and I think he's right because the context is spiritual battle. When he says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God, you put on armor when you go into battle. So Roger says this, the word could be used in a military sense indicating to hold a watch post. 
when armies sleep at night, somebody is appointed to stand guard and watch. When they would run uh, thousands and thousands of cattle up the Chisholm Trail, and they would bed those cattle down, they would assign different cowboys to different watches throughout the night. You might get from 12 to 3, and then you'd go over and kick the guy's boots and get him up, and then you'd go to sleep. Someone has to stand watch. Someone has to stand guard. Someone has to stand firm. Why? They are predators. Those cattle might be attacked. There's, someone's got to be awake. Someone's got to stand firm, and someone's got to be on guard. That's the first sense. The second idea that perhaps could be used is that it means also to stand and hold a critical position or assignment on the battlefield. So as a general places his men, places the different companies, uh, your, your assignment, your um, responsibility may be over here on this flank to hold that, to stand firm on that flank. Uh, part of the strategy of, of the commanding general, he will put some over here, he'll put some here, you know, it's tactics, it's strategy, but whatever you're assigned, whatever post you are assigned to, what is your responsibility? Your responsibility is to hold it and stand firm. Stand firm with your assignment. Uh, stand firm as you are assigned to your post. Verse 13. I want to hone in on this tonight. Therefore, you say you honed in on it two weeks ago. Yes, I did. I want to hone in some more. We honed in last time on the phrase, the evil day. That you may be able to resist in the evil day. And we talked about the six evil days that Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians that he outlined for us. But tonight I want to pound on stand firm. Stand firm as you've been assigned to your post. Stand firm as you are on watch. Stand firm. You're responsible for somebody. God's assigned you to a post. He's assigned you to a post, he assigned me to a post. Uh, if you're married, there's an assignment. Well, what's the assignment? Stay married. Do you have kids? What's the assignment? Father those kids. You just don't feed them, you got to father them. You just don't coach them, you father them. You just don't teach them how to hit a curveball. Being a father is you have to teach them how to Hit a moral curveball, you see. Good, good coaches anticipate situations that their players are going to uh, face down the road. And then what do they do? They prepare them in advance. Uh, that's part of your assignment. If you're a father with kids at home, if you're a, a husband, if uh, in your career you've been assigned to a post, we'll get into that more. Uh, there is, a, there, there, there is a story in the Old Testament that people know who have never read the Old Testament. It's so famous. Uh, it is a story that uh, if, if uh, you've never been to church, you know this story. It involves two people. The first person, uh, her name is Bathsheba. And when you think of Bathsheba, you think of a man, and his name is, his name is David. That story is recounted for us in... Uh, 2 Samuel 11, and the reason, and, and see, we know the story, and we know what happened. 
We know that David was on uh, the rooftop. We know that the uh, rooftops in Jerusalem, and it's true even to this day, the rooftops are like patios um, because David was the king. He had the highest rooftop. He was out there one evening, uh, looks out across the city. Uh, in a, on a distant rooftop was this beautiful woman, did not realize she was being watched, got into her bath. You know what happened from there. He sees her, brings her in. Turns out she's married. Uh, she gets pregnant as a result of being with David. It's one of his key uh, military leaders. It's one of his mighty men who's off at battle. What does David do? David says, well, bring him back in uh, under pretense of getting a report. He, the guy gives him the report. Uriah does. He says, great job. Now you go spend the night with your wife. Uh, Uriah goes home. But Uriah, because he's a man of character, refuses to sleep with his wife. Because if his men on the battlefield can't sleep with their wives, he's not going to sleep with his own wife. So David's plan was foiled. Because if he had slept with his wife, then it would have been covered up that David was the father of that child. So now David's in deep water because now what David has to do is David's got to send him back into battle, sends a note to Joab, who's the general, and says, put him in the heat of the battle, put him in the front lines. And he didn't say so that he'd be killed, but that was sure the implication, and that's exactly what, what happened. That's exactly what happened. Now, we all know that story. What's interesting to me is what transpired before he saw Bathsheba on the roof. Because some things happened before he saw Bathsheba. Before he saw her get into that, uh, into that tub, some things happened that basically ensured the events of that night were going to take place. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is this. Is that David was ambushed before he ever saw Bathsheba, and he never saw it coming. He never saw the ambush coming. Basically, what we've just read in Ephesians 6.13, the principles in, in 6.13 of Ephesians, David, <laughs> David violated every principle in that passage before he saw Bathsheba, therefore he was set up, and therefore his carcass was hanging off a meat hook in a locker within a matter of hours before he ever saw her. Second, uh, Second Samuel 11, if you'd turn there with me. Now what's interesting about Second Samuel 11 is uh, it's a famous story, it's David and Bathsheba. But the first ten chapters of Second Samuel are wonderful chapters because David has success after success after success after success. He's made king. He unites the nation. nation had been divided. He unites the nation. That was the favor of God. He brings back the ark. The Philistines had had the ark. They'd had the ark, and what did he do? Well, God favored him, and they brought the ark back, and, and, and the nation's united. They've got one king. Uh, oh, they went to battle. David was never defeated in battle, ever. This is, this is all that's happening up, into, uh, up, up to the events of 2 Samuel 11. He's on a roll. He's got success. He's got prosperity. Everything he touches turns to gold. And then some things begin to happen in his life. Um, 
Let me give them to you in short order here. Here's the first observation of what happened in David's life in 2 Samuel 11. And what we ought to do, before I give you the observation, let's read it. Then it happened in the spring, right now, this time of year. Is this not great weather? You guys that are just new from out of state, this is how it is every day here. If you drink a lot of beer, you think that's what it's like. But if you're, if you're sober, it's not like this every day. So spring's kind of nice when you get a day like this, isn't it? Something about spring. It happened in the spring. At the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. That's one of those verses you can just fly right over. Right? And you, and you, and you, you just never, you, you never get what's there. Uh, there's not a wasted word in the Bible. Man, are there some lessons in that verse. Here's the first observation. David did not stand firm at his assigned post. Uh, here's what we can say about David. David was king. David was commander-in-chief. And in Israel, the king and the commander-in-chief, they didn't send men into battle, they led men into battle. That's what he was known for. He was a great warrior. He was a great fighter. Uh, Saul has slain his thousands. David his tens of thousands. My gosh. I mean, the, the, the thought of David leading a group of Israelis into battle put the fear of God in the other people, in, their, in, in the surrounding nations. David was a king, and David was a warrior. But for some reason, at this particular point in his life, David went AWOL. He was absent without leave. There's no indicator here that he received instruction from the Lord to not lead his men into battle. There's no indication that his advisors said, David, you shouldn't go into battle. That had happened. There are other times in David's life when there were, uh, you know, he fought Goliath, but there were some other giants that came down the pike who came after David. His mighty men, some of his mighty men said, don't you go, I'll go fight this guy. That happened several times. This wasn't one of those occasions. You don't have any sense that David was directed by the Lord to not go into battle. You don't have any indication that he received wise counsel from godly men that he should not go into battle, you get the very strong sense that David, on his own, decided he was not going into battle. What you call absent without leave. Um, he, sent, he sent Joab. He sent the army. Uh, they were at battle. They were at war. But David stayed in Jerusalem. Here's the second observation. When David stayed in Jerusalem... He was not only AWOL, here's the second observation, but David took off his armor. 
Now, the very clear indication in Ephesians 6, three times, is stand firm. Stand firm, stand firm. Do not leave your post. You've been assigned a post, and you do not leave. Not only did he leave his post, where, where was his assigned post? Out in front, leading his men into battle. On his own, he decides, I'm not going out there. For whatever reasons, we don't know. But instead of being out in battle, he's back in Jerusalem. When he was back in Jerusalem, instead of his men, when he was back in Jerusalem, he took off his armor. What Ephesians 6 says is, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. May I say this to you? David was being set up by the enemy. Not only to leave his post, but to take off his armor. David did not have a warfare mentality right now because he was at home in, in the luxury and in the affluence and the opulence of the palace. But his men were out there. So he takes off his armor. But see, one of the things you can never do in spiritual battle is to take off your armor because the battle never ends. You don't take off your armor. You keep the armor on. But for some inexplicable reason, and it's not inexplicable because we know what happened. He, he, hey, hey, here, think about this. Here's a guy that is called by God. Here's a guy that unifies God's covenant nation. Here's a guy that sees the ark return from the Philistines. Here's a guy who's described as a man after God's own heart. Do you not think the enemy had him targeted? I'd say he did. Well, how do you get a guy like David? Well, you've got to be pretty crafty, and you're going to have to be subtle, and you're going to have to come in a door that he never expected you to come through. Ah, just take a break. Ah, take off the armor. Put on your T-shirt. Put on your cutoffs. Put on your flip-flops. Light up a stogie. Watch bracketology. <laughs> Well, I mean, I know nothing. Yeah, but he's the king. He's the king. His guys are out fighting. And he's back lounging in Jerusalem. Third observation. David demanded from his men what he would not do himself. He demanded that his men would stand firm at their post and go into battle, but he asked his men to do what he himself wouldn't do. That was out of character for David. Well, you know what we're seeing here? We're seeing David make bad choices. We're seeing David, <laughs> instead, of be, instead of being the wise man that we have known David to be, we are now seeing David become a foolish man. Something is happening up here. Something is happening in his thinking. Something is happening in his thought life. Uh, it was J.C. Ryle who said, thoughts are the parents of words and deeds. So you see a wise man, you see a wise man, that wise man, the reason he's wise and the reason he's acting wisely is that he's got wise thoughts. Proverbs says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. You walk with fools, you're going to be a fool. 
You listen to the Word of God, you listen to the wisdom of God, you're going to be a wise man. You, you listen to satanic counterfeits of what will make you happy, you don't need to stay in that marriage. How long are you going to put up with this? I've, I've been... I've talked with a guy over the last seven, eight years who's just in a really bad marriage. And we'll talk from time to time. And on several occasions, it's just, he's just been really, really discouraged. And he says, you know, my friends, my Christian friends say it's so bad you just need to leave. And he said, you know, Steve, I can't leave. I said, why can't you leave? He said, it's not right for me to leave. I don't have grounds to leave. My friend, but I'll have Christian friends say, God doesn't want you this unhappy. Well, now, give me a verse on that. See, that's a false gospel. Well, I'm so unhappy, God obviously doesn't want me here. That's a false gospel. And he hasn't left. And he shouldn't leave. You, you, know, it, you, you, know, you know, we talk about the marriage vows for better or worse. You know what he's got? He's got worse. And he's not leaving. He's got children. And he says, I think about my kids. He said, good for you. See, most guys in your situation really think about themselves. Uh, He said, you're on track. You just stay the course. You keep punching in, you keep showing up. Now, you can't make your spouse do what's right. You do what's right. You guys get what I'm saying, don't you? And you know what? He just remains at his post. Are his needs being met? No. Last time I talked with him, he hadn't been sexually intimate with his wife in over four years. He was a guy in his early 40s. It's not supposed to be that way, is it? Is he bolting? No, he's staying put. And he has my greatest admiration. And here's the other thing. It looks pretty bleak for the future. But you never know. You never know that God might step in. You never know that God might change a heart. But with this guy, even if her heart isn't changed, he's not leaving. He's standing firm. Now there's a godly man for you. David demanded that his men go into battle and be faithful at their post, yet this was out of character for David. He asked them to do something that he himself wasn't doing. Now, we see this all the time. We see it in the business world. We see it in politics. We... uh... Okay, I'm going to edit it right there. by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I'm editing right now. <laughs> we see it all the time. We see it all the time. We see the double standard. But you see, this hadn't been in David's life. Something was going on. What was happening? David was falling for the strategies of the enemy. He's just being set up. Okay, let's keep moving. Um, number four. David was isolated. And here's number five. David was idle. I-D-L-E. That is a lethal com combination. He was isolated. It was interesting to hear these three guys talk about why they're in these groups. And what I heard every one of them say, to a certain degree, was, you can't be isolated. Because when you're isolated, you're in trouble. See, this is always what they, I was just listening to these guys and thinking they're setting me up. Uh, out of their own experience. If, if I'm going to fight the good fight, if I'm going to fight spiritual battle, I can't fight it by myself. What the enemy wants to do, how does the enemy pick off a guy? He isolates him. He calls him out of the herd. You've seen it on National Geographic. It always works the same. Uh, you got those herds. Here come the lions. And the lions, what are they going to do? They're going to they're call one out. They're not, they're not after 15 of them. They're after one. And they focus in on one. They isolate them. They get them away from the other animals. And boom, it's all over. And suddenly they're feeding. And it's a feeding frenzy. That's what Satan does. He will try to isolate you from other men who love Christ and who love the Word of God and can encourage you. The, the Christian life, we, we are not designed to live the Christian life by ourselves. We are in a body. We are in churches that teach the Word of God. We are to have relationships that, uh, that uh, encourage us and stimulate us. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrew says, as is the habit of some. We're, we're, because we're to be together and we stimulate one another to love and good works. You need other guys that are going the same direction you are. In your life, as a Christian man, number one, as a Christian man who's following Christ, you're never going downstream. This isn't a cruise we're on, you know? What you are is in a rowboat going upstream against the current. And what you need in your life is, you don't need to be in the rowboat by yourself, rowing against the current. You need other guys that are going in the same direction, rowing the same direction as you are. That's how the Christian life is supposed to be. But David is isolated. Why is David isolated? He made a choice to isolate himself from his men. And, and obviously, this guy is not thinking clearly. And not only is he isolated, but he's idle. I-D-L-E. In our culture... We make an idol, I-D-O-L, of being I-D-L-E. If you've got the good life, and there's, 
Is it not a crock, all the messages we're getting? All the stuff we're getting all the time. All the... You know, I talk about my dad a lot, and I learn from my dad. You get up in the morning, you get your coffee, you get your Bible, and you start with your Bible. I'm glad he taught me that. He just, that's what you do. That's what a man does. That's, that's what a Christian man Growing up, I thought that's what every Christian, I thought that's what guys did. I thought every man in my church did that because my dad did it. He'd get up in the morning, get his coffee, get his Bible. But then I found out later, you know, not every Christian guy does that. There's a reason my dad did that. My dad would start with truth every single morning. Why would he start with the word of God? He, know, he needed the truth of God because he was going to be lied to for the rest of the day. Right? How many times have you been lied to today? You don't even know. You can't even, yeah, you can't even do the math on that. Even if you were a math major. How many commercials do we hear that lie to us? Most of them. And one of, the big, one of the big things we hear as guys in our culture, and a lot of people, man, with this economy, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to retire. Well, look, at, now let's, let's keep this in perspective. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with, hey, you can't, you can't, you don't have the energy at 60 or 65 or 70 that you had when you were 20. That's pretty, I mean, that's a fact of life. So you're not, you're not going to, you know, you just go through the phases of life. You get miles on your tires. You know, you need shocks and struts. Um, a few other things you need we won't go into. But you're, you're older. But, and so are, are you going to cut back some and maybe not put in the hours you used to and all that? Maybe take is there a place for, um, is there a place to adjusting to the place where you are in life and not having to work as hard and fervently as you did before? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Nothing wrong with that. You see? Okay, it's a blessing from God if you have it. But see, what I'm talking about in our culture is where we make an idol out of being I-D-L-E. You put yourself in a position where you don't have to do anything, where you can lay back and be totally selfish and self-centered. Now see, that's what they lay out on the commercials. Now that's a retirement. That's a recipe for disaster. And may I say this? If they had commercials, and, they, and, and, and back in David's day, they had celebrities doing commercial, where David was in verse 2, he would be the model of retirement for commercials you would see during NFL football games. Man, he had worked hard, but man, he had been shrewd financially, he had made this move, he had made this move, he had made this move, and uh, he's idle, I-D-L-A. Now, we, here, here's what we know. As you get older, you know, you recalibrate, you readjust. Maybe you don't put in as many hours here, and guys, you make transition. And, and, but here's the thing. You may not put in the, the hours that you used to, and you may not do the same work that you used to do, but can we say this? You still have gifts, you still have a calling, you still have work to do, and you still need to be productive. What you don't need to be is to be I-D-L-E. There's an old saying that says, an idle mind is the devil's playground. Watch it in verse 2. 
Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. Stop right there. <laughs> do, you, do you see how you could fly right by that one? Now when evening came, hey, hey what? What does that say? It doesn't say, and can I say this to you? Never before in David's life could you have said this. At any other time in David's life, here's what you would have said. Now when morning came, David arose from his bed. <laughs> no, not anymore. Listen, I heard a long time ago that when the sun goes down, pretty much nothing good's going to happen. You know? That's when, that's when the police department doubles up. Not at 7.30 in the morning. Not a lot of, not a lot of arrest at 7.30, 8.30, 9.30 at morning, other than road rage. <laughs> but man, when the sun goes down and those boys start getting up, you got trouble. David had never done this in his life. Uh, if you have a, uh, Engli I'm reading out of the New American Standard. If you have an English Standard Version, I think it says, um, late, one afternoon. late one afternoon. Or some passages say, um, David got up in the late afternoon. The idea. In other words, he'd been in bed all afternoon. That's not what men do. But that's what David was doing. And you see, this was all part of the con job. This was all part of the strategy. What, what happens to him first? First, he, 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 he walks away from his assigned post. He's not standing firm. Huh. He's isolated. Where are the men in his life? Well, they're all out there. He's all by himself, doing whatever he wants to do. I've said this before in here, and I'll say it again. Um, David's best friend throughout his life had been Jonathan. At this occurrence, Jonathan's dead. I don't see that he ever replaced that friendship. It was a great friendship. They looked out for one another. And, and again, I heard three gentlemen tonight talking about why they're in groups. Well, we're friends. We talk to each other. We hold each other accountable. We're not hammering each other. But sometimes, you know what, we all get off base. And we all drift, and sometimes, I don't know about you, I need some people in my life who are not impressed with me. i got a lot of people who aren't impressed with me. But I need some people who love me, who know me, who aren't impressed with me, that will tell me the truth. That will say, hey, what are you doing? So if you look at 11.2, now when the evening came... David arose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house. Why? He's got nothing to do. He's retired. He's idle. He doesn't have anything productive to do in his life. He's out of touch. He's out of sync. He's unproductive. He's not using his gifts. He's not furthering the kingdom of God. He's just walking around the roof looking for something to do. That's a recipe for disaster, and disaster is on its way. You know, sometimes, I, 
I, I like reading the old Puritan pastors from 300 years ago. And when you read these guys, and they'll talk about sometimes our um, afflictions in life. I, I, I like to read Thomas Watson's book, All Things for Good, based on Romans 8.28. And the first chapter of that booklet, written 350 years ago now, the first chapter, uh, the first chapter title is, The Best Things Work for the Godly. That's chapter one. Chapter two is, the worst things work for the godly. And chapter 2 is twice as long as chapter 1. And one of the things he talks about in chapter 2 is when things happen to us that we don't want to have happen to us. Uh, he'll talk about if you've lost your estate, if you've lost your pension, if you've lost your stream of income. Well, who wants that to happen to them? Nobody does. One of the reasons he talks about that, by the way, that book was written, that book was written to a specific audience. That book was written in 1663. In 1662, every conservative Bible-preaching pastor in England was thrown out of his church. And they were all paid by the, by the state church because there was no separation of church and state. So every pastor that refused to buy into the unbiblical traditions and who held to the word of God, they were just, boom, like that, thrown out. They had no income, they had no pension, and they were forbidden to go within five miles of a church and preach. Happened over 2,000 of them. So who is he writing this booklet to? To pastors who had lost everything for refusing to compromise the word of God. Were they fighting some bitterness, do you think? Were they fighting some resentment? Why has God allowed this to happen? What would happen if you lost your income, if you lost this, if you lost that, and they're having the fin for themselves, and they're just, they're just trying to feed their families on a daily basis? I mean, it, it was desperation. One of the things that Watson says is that oftentimes when God sends his rod and it hurts. We should kiss the rod. I'm thinking, who is this guy? You should kiss the rod. Because you see, it's all under the good hand of the Father. And if he takes something away, if he disciplines, if he withholds something, it's because it's for your good. How do you know that if you're state was to increase? How do you know if your business was to increase that it wouldn't turn your heart from the living God and cause you to love money, which is a snare and a temptation and a destruction? Do you ever think like that? I don't think like that. That's why I read guys like Watson. Because of the maturity and because of the insight. So when something is taken away, don't resist him, don't fight him. Kiss the rod and say, thank you for saving my life. Will he take care of you? Yes. Will you make it? Yes. Will you have a big surplus? No. Kiss the rod. Can you afford to be idle? No. It may save your life. Because David was in a position of such affluence 
such riches that a man who was a man after God's own heart, who was the one man in all of Israel that took on the uncircumcised Philistine, a man that was a giant for God, he could not handle the affluence, the wealth, the privilege, the benefits, the status. He couldn't handle it. It brought him down. Isn't that interesting? You guys still there? I need to be on TV preaching prosperity theology, don't you think? <laughs> My hair's not long. Yeah, I need a hair transplant, Jim. I need a facelift. I need a bunch of things. Yeah. Okay, you guys still there, right? Okay. Is this making any sense? See, this is all Ephesians 6.13 stuff. Oh, by the way, has David sinned with Bathsheba yet? Has he slept with her yet? Has he gotten her pregnant yet? Has he brought her husband back yet? And then the guy went and said, has he murdered her husband yet? No. No, none of that stuff has happened. But do you see how he is being set up? Uh, by the way, where are you right now in life? How are you doing? More on that later. Uh, number five. Am I on five or six? Yeah, you know, whatever. I had five, six, seven. You guys don't know. They just, these guys up here, they let them out of the home on Wednesday nights. Uh, okay. Uh, number four was David was um, isolated. And on my notes... Let's make five idle. Okay. And this is a democracy. We'll do whatever you guys think. Uh, so number six. Here's number six. David was not in the habit of obeying when it came to women. Say it one more time. David was not in the habit of obeying when it came to women. I remember in seminary, Young guy, early 20s, I'm in seminary. I can't remember who it was who came in and preached. It was an older pastor, and I remember him saying this, because it scared me to death. He said, look it, you guys, here's what you got to watch for, because here's what the enemy's going to try. If you're a young preacher, you get out there and you get in the church, here's what's going to happen. He's going to try and take you out. And he usually tries to take out preachers in one of three areas. Number one is pride. If you're gifted, he'll get you to love your gifts instead of humbly thanking God for your gifts. If you have any success, if you have any growth in your church, he'll get you with pride. Uh, so don't stand at the back of the service and let people after the service come and tell you how great it was. Don't do that. You don't need that crap. He didn't say crap. <laughs> but you don't need that. All it's going to do is puff you up, man, and puff you up like a toad. You're going to walk out of there thinking how great you are. So you're a preacher, he's going to either get you with pride, he's going to get you with women, or he's going to get you with money. And that money may surprise you because you say, oh, I'm going to be a preacher in a church. And if you're thinking you're going to make money, you're in the wrong, you're not too bright to begin with. The average church in America, average attendance is about 100 people. So you don't go into that for money. But what happens is, 
because you don't have a lot of money, sometimes you start to love money and wish you had money. There's a church not too far from where I live, a smaller church, but they came out of nowhere, built a building. Uh, I drive by on Sunday morning, not a lot of cars in the parking lot. Turns out they were a church plant from another large church in the area. Uh, gave them resources, built the building for them, all that. I read in the paper maybe two years later that that young pastor had walked away with 100000 bucks, pilfering funds. He's in jail now. Probably didn't make a lot of money. What happened to him? The enemy got him with money, the love of money. Just took a little here, a little there, well, you know, covering his tail. You know. David's issue uh, was not money. David's issue was women. Deuteronomy 17, 17, uh, God said, when you have a king, turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. I'm just going ahead right now. I have 11 minutes and 11 seconds left. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you I'm going over. Just, just letting you know in advance. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Uh, it's all about having a king. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. What's this about? You shall not multiply horses. You know what's interesting? One of the things that God would not let Israel do, he would not let Israel have chariots in battle. They couldn't have any chariots. Why not? All the other nations had chariots. Chariots were the latest technological development in, in weaponry. When they go to the Paris Air Show, or when they go to the, you know, the Munich Armament Convention, or whatever the heck they go to, the latest technological develop were, were, were iron-plated chariots. You know, the Hittites had them. The Hittites, the, you know, the, all the ites had them. All the ites in the, in the uh, uh, in, 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 all the Canaanites had them in Joshua's day. He said to Israel, you can't have chariots. You can't have them. Well, everybody else, can I tell you something? Everybody else had chariots. God wouldn't let them have chariots. In your life, there will be some things God will not let you have that other people that you know do have, but he won't let you have them. He would not let them have chariots. Why not? Because he didn't want them trusting in chariots as they went into battle. He wanted them trusting in him. And earlier in his life, David went into battle against chariots without chariots, and God gave him the victory, and who got the glory? God, no chariots, therefore I don't want you multiplying horses. Because horses and chariots go together. Oh, by the way, when you've got massive amounts of chariots and you've got massive amounts of horses to pull the chariots, what happens? Pride. Look at number two, verse 17. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Ah, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. What are the three things that bring down preachers? Pride, verse 16, 17, women, and then at the end of 17, money. It's right there in the text. All the other kings had multiple wives. God said the king of Israel has one wife. By the time you get to... Can I just go ahead and tell you something? David violated that a long time ago. David had multiple wives. He had multiple children by multiple wives. That's one reason his family was a wreck. David had always cut himself some slack in obeying God when it came to women. And I think it was um, 
uh, was it Alan Redpath in his book on David's life that when he describes David's situation on the rooftop when he sees Bathsheba, what he in essence said, David's history of disobeying the word of God in the area of sexuality and women, his wrong choices, his habitual choices, which he never dealt with, predisposed him to sin the moment he saw Bathsheba. Because he had made a series and series and series of choices that he knew was in disobedience to God. Now, I want to go back to something I said earlier. Once again, I don't know what number I'm on, but this is the next one. David went from a wise man to a foolish man. Basically, in the first ten chapters of Second Samuel, Second Samuel, except for the women issue, he was a wise man. He turns into a foolish man. I've been reading Henry Cloud's book called Necessary Endings. And in one of his chapters, he has a section on traits of wise persons and traits of foolish persons. He says, here are some of the traits of the wise. Now, this is a business book. Henry Cloud uh, has a... He's either a graduate of uh, Dallas or Talbot Seminary. I can't remember. He's got a theological background. He's a counselor. He's kind of writing this to general business people based on Ecclesiastes. Anyway, he's talking about traits of wise persons. Let me give you a couple of these. When you give them feedback, wise persons, they listen, take it in, and adjust their behavior accordingly. When you give them feedback, they embrace it positively. They say things like, thanks for telling me that. Uh, it helps me to know I came across that way. I didn't know that. Or, uh, thanks for caring enough to bring this to my attention. I needed to hear this. That's a wise man. Uh, Cloud says, there's some sort of appreciation for the feedback as they see it as something of value, even if it's hard for them to hear. Uh, here's the next uh, trait. They own their performance problems and issues and take responsibility for them without excuses or blame. That's refreshing, isn't it? That's a wise man. Uh, here's the next trait of wise persons. Your relationship, is, your relationship with them is strengthened as a result of giving them feedback, even if it's negative. Why? Because they're wise. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, the Bible says. They thank you for it and see you as someone who cares enough about them to have a hard conversation, which is for their benefit. Uh, some other traits. They show remorse. You get the feeling that they have genuine concern about whatever the issue is and they truly want to do better. Uh, in response to feedback, they go into a future-oriented, problem-solving mode. Now, I see this now. How can I do better? They, they want to handle it. They want to deal with it. Uh, last trait. They don't allow problems that have been addressed to turn into patterns. They change. They adjust and fix them. Doesn't mean change will be instantaneous, but they attempt to get to work. Okay, that's the wise person. Let's talk now about the foolish person. Whereas the chief descriptor of the wise person is that when the light shows up, he looks at it, receives it, joins it, and adjusts his behavior to align with the light, the fool does just the opposite. 
He rejects the feedback, resists it, explains it away, and does nothing to adjust to meet its requirements. In short, the fool tries to adjust the truth so he does not have to adjust to it. It's a great definition. What are some traits of foolish persons? Uh, when given feedback, they are defensive and immediately come back with you at you with a reason why it's not their fault. When a mistake is pointed out, they externalize the mistake and blame somebody else. Sometimes they will shift the blame to you as they shoot the messenger and make it somehow your fault. Uh, excuses are rampant and they never take ownership of the issue. Here's another one. Their emotional response has nothing to do with remorse. Instead, they get angry at you for being on their case, attacking with such lines as, you never think I do anything right. Or, how could you bring this up after all I have done for you? Or they go into the all bad position, saying something like, I guess I just can't do anything right. That's a fool. You know them. By the way, when they say, I can't do anything right, that's a cue for you to rescue them and point out how good they really are. Uh, they have little or no awareness of concern for the pain or frustration they are causing others. Their emotional stance towards getting corrected is opposite that of the wise person who embraces the feedback and shows appreciation. They see themselves as the victim. Foolish people are the opposite of wise people in that they desire to not change and not listen. He goes on and says, Therefore, if you're, dealing with, if you're dealing with foolish people, further talking about the problem is not the answer, so stop talking. So you say, what will help? Talking further will not help, but doing something that causes them to feel the consequences of their behavior may be what finally turns them around. With these kinds of people, the only time they get it is when it begins to cost them. I would submit to you that at this section of his life, David is a fool. You know the events that transpire. He gets Bathsheba. You know all of this. We've been over this. I want you to look at 2 Samuel 12. He has, he has gotten off the path of wisdom, and now he is living as a fool. What happens, uh, roughly a year goes by, he's covered his tail, uh, he's made sure that her husband dies uh, in battle, uh, no one can touch him with it except Joab, who knows the truth. Joab's keeping his mouth shut. Um, after an appropriate morning time, he marries, in 2 Corinthians 11, he marries the widow, Bathsheba, and I'm sure he got a lot of, you know, uh, accolades for being so sympathetic and taking her in, and, you know, he was the good guy in all this. 2 Samuel 12. About a year later, roughly, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. 
And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread, drink of his cup, lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. He tells David a story. Here's this guy who's got all these lambs. This guy's wealthy. This guy's got everything in the world. He's got all these flocks. He's got... And this little guy, you know, this guy comes to visit. Does he want to take from one of his flocks? No, he goes and takes the one lamb that's the pet of the little family. He goes and takes it. He tells David this. And verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. You see verse uh, 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. Ed Welch, Christian Counselor says this, the problem with anger is that those who don't have the problem take it to heart. Those who are angry are confident in their rightness and over time can become massively, utterly, completely deluded, blind, and this is no exaggeration, can feel quite good about themselves after bludgeoning someone close to them as if they have set the world all right. That's David in verse 5. He is livid with anger at what this other man has done. You're the man. Do you keep talking to a fool? Do you keep reasoning with a fool? There's got to be consequences. Verse 7, Nathan then said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it was I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have added to you many things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, taken his wife to be your wife. They have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, watch this. Here comes the consequences. Because you can't reason with a fool. You can't keep talking to a fool. They don't want to listen. They don't want to change. They don't want to hear it. Watch God. Watch the consequences. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of your Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. His son Absalom did that. Slept with his father's concubines in public. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Watch David wise up in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. That is amazing. Even in the midst of discipline, there's grace. Even in the midst, uh, Romans says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. He's a good father. But sometimes he takes off the belt and disciplines us. Hebrews 12, every son he loves, he disciplines. 
And to those who have been trained by the peaceful fruit, but to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. David deserved to die, but his sin had already been forgiven. This all started, this all started because David did not stand firm, therefore, and put on the whole armor of God. Do you see why Ephesians 6 is important? So here's, here's, here's not what I'm asking you guys to do. Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm doing as I drove over here, and here's what I'm doing as I drive home. Here's what I'm doing. Lord, where is it in my life that I am resisting you and not being truthful with you? You ask him that, and I'll tell you something. He will immediately show you. In fact, you don't even have to ask, you don't even have to ask him, and he'll show you. It's not like you have to ask God, Lord, make this clear. It's already clear, and some of you, it's already in your heart. So can I say this to you? When he makes it clear, can I say this to you? Quit screwing around with it. Quit coddling it. Quit being defensive. Quit, quit overlooking it. And deal with it. Because if you don't deal with it now, and you don't take it to him, and you don't repent, and you don't turn from it, there are going to be Consequences. Because he loves you so much, he'll save your life. But he will discipline you severely. So why not deal with it? Just deal with it now and receive his grace. If you need to go to someone and ask their forgiveness, if you need to fess up of not being true, I don't know what it is. I don't know. But don't let Satan trap you. And don't let Satan con you. This is what this is all about. That we might stand firm and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we look at David, and here, here was a guy we love and admire, and you loved, and you blessed all the days of his life. You kept your promises to him. We, we love David. But he was a flawed man, just as we are so desperately flawed. So one of the guys said earlier, you know, just take a look around you. Every, every guy you look at around you is all screwed up. We're just all screwed up. We're, we're just great sinners in here. We're, we'd be ashamed for people to know the things we have thought, the things we have done. We would be utterly and totally ashamed and humiliated. What loving kindness you have given to us. What a great Savior Jesus is. And Father, sometimes when, when, when we are convicted of sin, we, we think, oh, I can't come, I can't come, I won't be forgiven, I, I've asked for forgiveness too many times. Now, that's the, there's another strategy of the devil. He's lying to us. You, you will in no wise cast out those who come to you. So we confess our sin. 
We don't want to live double lives. We don't want to lead private lives. We don't want to continue to live foolishly. We want to be wise. So we bring whatever it might be in our lives that we have been hiding. We bring the secrets and we bring them to you into the light where they are exposed and we confess our sin. I would pray that guys in this room that are in this situation would deal with this tonight. Tonight that they would deal with it and receive forgiveness and be set free and get this cleaned up with you. And you will clean us up if we confess. No more lying, no more secrets. Get it straight, get it right, and you embrace us and you love us. And sometimes with sin, there are consequences. Sometimes there are. That's how we learn. But there's forgiveness and you're gracious. And even in your severity, you're kind. We don't have to be terrified of you. We need to be terrified of sin and the devil and what it can do to our lives. Give us grace and mercy and wisdom and the want to to serve you from every being, every fabric of our being and our hearts, we pray. We bathe in your forgiveness and grace and mercy, and we accept it in Jesus' name. Amen.